Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Well, Jennifer, it's been a while since we've talked, um, but I met Jennifer, it was at this point, it was probably 10 years ago. Your in-laws held oh, yeah. a, um, they would hold like this relationship marriage. course. Marriage. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was on Sundays. They were like the cutest couple ever. And yeah. uh, they had you come speak once. And this was when I was married to my uh-huh. husband. Um, uh, so that's how I got introduced to Jennifer. And we all feel really lucky to be able to have you here today. I don't know. I I feel like a lot of times you talk in a context of heterosexual relationships, which is a common theme, but this is like a very diverse group of people, a lot of people in different circumstances. So I don't know that I've ever heard you speak to like a queer audience. Um, Yeah. But that's what you're getting today. So (laughs) that's right. (laughs) Awesome. That's good. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And Uh, I think I think the things that you teach about relationships are, you know, important yeah. across the board. And I've, you yeah. know, I benefited from the things you've said in my past relationship, but also in my current relationship to yeah. my wife. So I think right. that I don't think it's the things you teach are just- It's not that diverse. Exactly. I mean, humans are humans and couples do couples things. Um, I'm not yes. saying that they're precisely the same. I think one of the challenges that a lot of heterosexual couples deal with is a lot of traditional messages about how marriage should be. And I would imagine in a same-sex marriage, it's a little more like you're you're forging your own path. You don't have as much of an idea about who I'm supposed to be, who you're supposed to be. I'm not saying there wouldn't be other and different challenges. One of the questions I got was like, how, you know, how does it compare? But I don't have, because I've made my focus so much LDS couples, I don't have, I have some experience in working with same-sex couples, but not so much that I can say, hey, this is the, this is the clear distinction that I see. But all that said, I do think humans just keep on being human and they, (laughs) and and, and especially in marriage, especially in marriage, because when that person matters so much to you, that's often where we get pushed up against our limitations and where we need to grow. It often shows up in marriage in a way that it doesn't show up with more, you know, with more casual relationships or people that we're not sharing a life with. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. I will, that's my spiel. So I'll let you talk about, you know, we all kind of submitted questions. I don't know if you, yes, I got them and I pulled some of them. I'm going to speak, give some kind of core ideas that I have, Mm -hmm. then answer those questions and kind of relate them to some of those core ideas and then maybe open up the floor at that point if there's time. So, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. The floor is yours. Okay. Thank you. So, um, so let me just start. You know, th- this were this were a couple of the questions that came in, and I want to kind of use them as a springboard for just laying out some ideas. Um, one person asked, if you were to give guidelines about wise sexual practices in and out of the, out of marriage, not referencing religion, what guidelines would you give? 
which of the church's teachings do you find corroborate corroborated in your clinical practice? And then another person asked, what do you personally teach your children about homosexuality? What do you recommend we teach our children about homosexuality? So, um, so I'll just use that as a kind of uh, starting point. So I think that, um, you know, I want to talk a bit about how I understand the challenges that some, some members of our faith are confronted with, right? Many of you here in this group, like when you are queer or sexually divergent and you're a member of the church, right? You're going to be confronted with a discrepancy that can be very, very painful. And so I want to think with you a little bit about what are the healthiest ways that we can address that divergence and as well as healthy ways to think about sexuality and our sense of who we are. So the first idea is that I think we can only be judged by what we have control over, not by what we don't control. So what we do with our agency in a given situation rather than what choices we actually have. And so I think a lot of people feel shame often for who they are when it doesn't align with what their family or church or culture expects. And it can definitely make us feel broken, right? But I don't think we can fairly be judged by what we can't control. And so as painful as it is to be divergent from the expectations, right? It isn't, how do I say it? It isn't a it isn't about us being wrong. Somebody asked, like, how do I understand this? Does it mean that I'm broken in some way or that there was a mistake made? And that's just not how I understand it. Um, you know, as children, we're looking to others to tell us who we are. And if the truth about our inherent worth is not reflected back to us, right, because we're different than our parents think we should be, or because our parents are limited in their ability to love, then we will suffer for living in a false idea about ourselves and our worth. And so I just think it's very important for us to teach and believe in a God that judges us, you know, if that's even the right word, on what we do with what we're given, right? Not on what we can't control. And teach and believe in a God that created us and loves us for who we are, right? Fundamentally, in all of our diversity and our difference. God does not make mistakes. And so I have a child, for example, who's neuroatypical. He's on the autism spectrum. When he was diagnosed at age two, some well-meaning people, right, who were comforting me in some of my distress, said things like God was testing me or that there was something that I needed to learn, implying that Graham was broken in some way and that I was going to learn from this or needed to learn. And I just think that's the wrong understanding. It's the wrong understanding of my son. So while it's true that for my son, that there is an uncomfortable fit between what his gifts are and ways of being in the world are and what society generally expects, this is in no way an indicator of his value. 
right? He's an expression of divinity in his own right. He's a gift in his own right. And he deserves the dignity and respect that we all deserve, right? Because he didn't choose his body. He didn't choose his experience. And yet it's also that he expresses a brilliance and sweetness and clarity that's just unique and needed and valuable. And so, um, okay, so, um, so he's a gift. And even if the society doesn't reinforce that picture for him, it is in fact still true. So when one is born with an inherent attraction to their same sex or is born feeling like one sex while looking like another, right, it can be very easy to reject ourselves and see ourselves as unworthy. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I thought I was unworthy in middle school because I, my family couldn't afford the, the, the Nike shoes and the Jordache jeans that were in at the time. And that made me feel defective and less than, right? Which is a very small discrepancy. I mean, I also, there were plenty of ways I felt discrepant, but it, you know, these, they still hurt and they were still hard. But when you know that you're attracted to the wrong sex, and of course, I'm not saying that I literally think it's wrong, but you know that the culture is oriented one way and yet you feel another way, it can be very easy to try to conform and to be what's going to get validation or feel that you're fundamentally broken in some way, fundamentally wrong. And so... Um, and so it's really easy to reject ourselves and see ourselves as unworthy when in reality, in my view, we're all a part of the body of Christ and we all have need of one another, right? We can't say, I have no need of thee. So I think really fundamentally is this understanding is that we all belong to each other and we're all human together and we're all far more alike then we are dissimilar and we suffer when we don't live in the truth of that, when we don't relate to one another as fundamentally belonging and don't see ourselves as fundamentally belonging in part because we're living in a non-truth and it's a truth that causes, it, it's a non-truth that causes suffering. So, so that's the first idea is that we not, we're not judged for being divergent. It's a part of how it is. God doesn't make mistakes and we all belong. We all are an expression of divinity. And to understand that is a foundational idea that it's easier to talk about than to really feel in our lives, right? But the more we can believe in that and lean into that, the better we all do, not just members of the LGBTQ community, but all of us, because we aren't divided. We're not a house divided. We're not trying to reject what scares us, but growing through that diversity, learning through that diversity, right? You know, my son in his neurodiversity would often see things, understand things and feel things in a way that was different than the group, but were often perceptive on point and deeply true. And, you know, even though he's coming at it from a different perspective, he his point of view, his way of being in the world is valuable and needed and a part of the collective well-being. So the second idea is that 
all of us as human beings are managing a tension between who we are and what our group expects of us, right, on some level. And so very few of us fit really readily into what society values and who we actually are. Um, but for people that are um, queer or sexually divergent in some way, uh, they're having to manage that divergence at a much bigger level and in a very painful level. Society and church is always going to ask things of us, right? Always going to ask us to manage sexuality impulses, behave in ways that the society will reinforce. But, um, but this tension, right, between who we actually are and what is wanted from us is something that all human beings have to navigate. When that is really large, then of course it gets more painful and there's more pressure on us and it makes it scary to live honestly, right? So if you feel like if you show who you are, you will lose belonging, um, that is really painful. So something I talk about a lot in my classes and so on is that as human beings, we want two things. We want, we want to belong to other people. We want to belong to a marriage partner. We want to belong to a group, to a church community, to a family. It's just fundamental. We, we as human beings attach. We don't thrive without meaningful attachment. But what we also very much want is to belong to ourselves, to what is true about us to who we uniquely are, to fulfill the measure of our creation, and to be true to what is really fundamental about us and express our authentic selves in the world. And so those two pressures and realities are, um, is a fundamental tension that as human beings we're trying to work out. And so, you know, if somebody knows like, well, my family only values people who um, are not very emotional, don't express their feelings very much, are hard workers, you know, so on, then that child is often gonna try to fit into what makes them belong to that group. Often at the expense of what's actually true or even healthy for them, if that's what it takes to belong. But then what the tension is, is if you start feeling like you're disappearing or that you can't be true to who you are or that you're not really being who you are in order to get people to tell you you're okay. And then, you know, we're often in this question of do I lose belonging if I'm true to myself? And this is something that all human beings have to deal with. Some people deal with it by living falsely, right, giving false pictures of who they are as a way to keep the group happy with them while they live in another reality. And as understandable as that may be, our ability to really find peace in our lives is, is in our choosing in the face of that discrepancy around how we can live in a way that gives us genuine peace with ourselves, right? If we make our lives about keeping people happy with us, and, and making people think, you know, a lot of us have the sense of, I can't be okay unless you think I'm okay. 
And when we live in that limited place, we either have to mask our lives or we conform to what people want from us, but we're not yet in a position to really claim our lives. So the there is a gift in all the suffering that sexually divergent individuals experience is that you you aren't going to be able to please your group, right? Usually. Now, if you have a very loving family and you have people that know you and understand you, then you're very fortunate and you don't have to lose your group to belong to yourself. But for many, many people, there is this, they we want both things and yet they may recognize I may only get one thing, right? Either I try to fit, excuse me, to fit in or I claim who I am and I lose belonging. And the the gift that's in that often, okay, is that it pressures when you can't fit in it often pressures growth at a different level right it pressures you into that crucible of not being able to get what you want i want to be true to myself and belong to you and i can't have both things and when you can't have both things it pressures you to define your life through agency, through choosing. Who am I going to be given what matters to me, given what I value, given who I am, given what I believe is best? And that you're pressured to define your life more deeply because others won't hold that task for you. Now, I'm not saying, oh, this just goes great and this is perfect, of course. But it is the silver lining often, and probably some of you here can relate to this, is that it pushes you to give up the task of getting people to be happy with you in the same way earlier than others who can get it more readily. And when people learn to do that, to sustain their sense of self, even with invalidation from others, even when it doesn't fit what others want, they often find an inner strength to be able to take deeper responsibility for their lives, deeper ability to, to accept themselves because they have to go it alone in a sense. They can't depend on approval to make it happen. Let me just stop for a second and just see like, are people having questions about what I'm saying or want me to clarify any of this? This is, if you listen to me, this might feel normal, but for those of you who've never listened to me, it might feel a little confusing. So just, do you have questions, anyone who so far about what I'm saying? Um, I have a question. Sure. So this is making sense, I think, uh, um, but I want to, ask sort of because you know a lot of your teaching is about sexuality and um the importance of you know bringing that on to us and in this group we have people who are asexual and in mixed orientation marriages yes so it's like i'm wondering how those two groups play into what you're saying because i obviously have my path where i you know, I did sort of 
had, you know, became my, I chose one path, but there's other people that are choosing other paths. Yes. And I'm wondering how that um, plays in with what you're saying, because I, as far as I understand, you believe like owning your sexuality and getting to know your sexuality is like really important to a sense of self. So when somebody yeah. is absent of sexual feelings, how does that play in? And then also yeah. when somebody knows they have sexual feelings one way, but feels called to take another path, how yeah. does that fit into what you're saying? Yeah. So they're all variations on the same fundamental tension, right? So they are all, it gets pretty abstract. So I'm going to try and keep it as concrete as I can. The same fundamental question of how am I going to handle the fact, right, that I feel no sexual attraction, let's say, but I want to be married, right? I want to belong to you, but I feel nothing and don't think I ever will, right? And so how do I then figure out where I can stand in my life in that impasse, in that kind of gridlock, right? And this is often what drives us into, when we're doing it well, into taking deeper responsibility for our lives in one direction or another, right? Instead of like, okay, I'm just going to pretend that I like sex and just keep trying to make this work so I don't have to take a, make a decision. Okay. Or, you know, I'm going to, or, or I have to give up on marriage altogether. But what I would say in that is that this is where it pushes us to make decisions, right? Is this, um, let me just give one more idea. I think a lot of times an idea we often have in the church is that if I do everything right, I will be happy, right? Or if I, you know, make the right decision, then it will all come together for me. And what's often at crisis in this is that there isn't a right decision. There isn't a decision in which you're going to get everything you want. And that's its own crisis. I mean, like, <laughs> it's kind of like, wait, you mean I have to live in a deeply flawed world and tolerate and grieve that I can't have everything I want. So in a lot of my work with people, it's pushing them up against their impasses it's helping them see you want two things that go against each other you can't have both right and it's not because i'm making the rules because if i were i'd say everybody gets everything <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh, but you know but given that you can't do it you have to decide right you don't have to decide a lot of people don't and they resent that they can't have everything they want but the people that grow into a place of peace decide what am I willing to lose, right? And so I'm sure as you made choices, you, there were losses with those choices. There were also gains and gains that mattered to you, but there were also losses and disorientation and disorganization. And yet it's in asserting a choice that we define ourselves. So for example, if someone is asexual, right? The thing that's going to help them move their lives forward is to tolerate, like, I, I can't get everything I want. I have two choices that feel like they go against each other. One is I can be in a marriage with a partner that I care about who wants to have sex. And, 
you know, figure out how I'm going to navigate that, or I can be unmarried, right? And not be sexual. Or there's another option, which is, you know, truly negotiate with that person. Like, I want to be married, but I don't want to ever have sex. And if the other person is okay with that, I mean, then I think you can live in that reality. But it does push you to claim which losses you're going to best tolerate. That's really so much of life is which losses can I with the most integrity handle? Oh, I think this is what I was going to say. And I think that this is pushed upon divergent people, divergent from the norms, much, much more than somebody who can kind of fit within the norms. They don't have to define themselves in the same way, this is what I was gonna say. And so they can stay in a world in which they have a reflected sense of self, where when we have to deal with that divergence, it pushes us into a more solid self. It pushes, pushes us to self-define in the face of that discrepancy. So your other question was, what if you're in a heterosexual marriage, but you are attracted to the same sex? That was the other example you brought up, right? Well, I think it's very much the same question. Like, you know, I'm working with a couple right now where he pushed his sexuality down for years. Then he kind of came to a breaking point where, you know, he, he felt ashamed. So he's in a heterosexual marriage, felt deeply ashamed, was trying to pray it away, trying to get rid of it, not sharing it. And then kind of came to a breaking point, started to be more honest with himself, with his spouse and is in this very challenging place of having to claim a decision. And there will be lots, he deeply loves his wife. They've created a very good family, a very good marriage. Like there's so many good things there. And, and yet he understands as he stays there, which he wants, he, he doesn't want to walk away from all of that. And of course they would still be amicable, of course, but it's not the same as staying in that marriage. And as he wants that, but he also wants to love a man. He also wants this. And so he has, and, and this is not to diminish it, he has infinite desires within finite within a finite world. I don't mean they're infinite desires, but I'm saying he he's living in a finite world that doesn't readily fit itself into that. And so the sooner we, how to say it, the more we learn to live life on life's terms and grieve what that means that we lose, the stronger we get. But it doesn't mean that we don't confront loss as a fundamental part of growing and self-defining. And so, you know, I, I obviously, I guess it's obvious, I hope that our faith community will continue growing and creating a bigger tent because to come to this question of what, what we have as Latter-day Saints, we have some amazing aspects of our theology around sexuality, partnership, progression, embracing of the body that I think are so valuable for human well-being. Um, and the more we can truly include are are non you know hetero brothers and sisters right the more 
the stronger we'll be as a community, the better we'll be. And so clearly, I hope our community will grow to be more inclusive. But in those discrepant realities, right, it really comes down to what losses can I back up in my life? I know that sounds depressing probably to some, <laughs> but I don't know of another way. It's, you know, what we often do is we, we resent that we can't have it all. And we, and this is just, this is for all humans, right? We resent that we can't have everything we desire. I remember one client saying to me, like, I'm never going to live in England. I always wanted to live. In, I mean, she had a very good life. I mean, this is just a silly thing. But she's like, it. what she was wrestling with was the finiteness of life. And that even if she's on a decent path, there's all these other paths that she still grieves. And so it is a part of the human experience to miss out. And so what missing out can I get my head around? That's the missing out. That That's living life best, as hard as that is. What are other thoughts or questions, either from you, Sadie, or others? Yeah, that's really depressing. I want everything. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anybody else that has thoughts or questions surrounding this? Um I just I just got a quick question from somebody that was saying when they have sex they have um connection but they don't feel any sensation. I don't know if that's something you come across pretty often um are there they want to know if there's something wrong with them or if it's a sexuality label that they don't Well, I think so I do think there is sometimes I think about it in terms of like musical ability and there is a real spectrum people that are just like musically gifted as a very young child they're like singing tunes and you know they just they they get it and then there's people that are tone deaf from the beginning or always tone deaf right? okay and, and, and almost all human beings are capable of growing in their musicality even if they're starting at very very different places and there is a very small percentage of people who have amusia and they literally are incapable of any sec, uh, any musical development, right? That is to say, they, they, their brain does not make it possible. Um, so it's a little hard for me to answer the question on this person because I don't necessarily know, you know, is there no feeling because, well, I'm not saying this person, but there's lots of reasons, sexual trauma, that the person has learned to shut sexuality down for a long time, that they never were that sexual at all. And they grew up in a culture that suppressed it, right? That, you know, that they have never let themselves have a sexual thought. You know, for example, I had a client who actually had very sexual thoughts as a child, even kind of S&M type thoughts, and they scared her so much that she shut it all down instinctively because it felt so scary to her. And then in, in her thirties, she felt nothing. You know, it was only as I was asking her more about her history that I understood she actually had a very heightened kind of sexual awareness. It just was 
scary to her. And so she didn't want to develop it at all. So there's that possibility. So it depends a lot on why one isn't having sensation. I've certainly worked with clients that had no sensation. You know, this is just one example of a person who almost resisted sexuality because she saw it as a way to be used. And so her body was kind of resisting and rejecting it. And she really did feel nothing. And once she kind of worked through that impasse in her own mind and knew and, and was in her split decisions, okay, of, you know, a sexless marriage with a man who will eventually leave or claiming this marriage, then her body started to respond more because she wasn't in a kind of internal struggle. So there's a lot of reasons. The person asking this question, let's just say that biologically you're unable to feel anything. Um, I would still be then think, let's say that is the case. I would still be thinking about what do I choose? And the more that one chooses it, the more your body works with you. So if I choose the connection, if I choose to be here, if I'm not resenting it because I'm saying of my choices, this is the choice I most want, then you're more likely for your mind and body to work with you to be capable of feeling pleasure there. Now that may be, maybe you would never be orgasmic. Maybe you would not be having the heights of arousal, but you might be able to bring more of yourself and your capacity for pleasure into that connection. So, you know, as humans, we're often in these kind of um, contradictions within ourselves that show up in our sexuality. Thank you for that. Um, to kind of jump back to what we yes. were talking about a little bit earlier, somebody um, asked, um, can you talk about how to claim yourself, how to be okay outside the norm? and grieve your yeah. own reality because yeah, I think question. you know we all really like being in the norm um absolutely being in this yeah. space makes us step out of the norm even if you are in a mixed orientation marriage and still have the you know the outside yeah. look you're you're stepping out how do like what are ways that you can grieve. Well, I, first of all, I think it's very hard and, you know, it's much easier to sit here and talk about it than to actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, because it's difficult when you feel like you're not being treated as you are, mm -hmm. right? When you're not being understood, when you're maligned in some way and to hold your dignity. And I think that, you know, how to say it. So, so I have two thoughts about it. The first is if you can truly believe in a God that knows you and accepts you, it's a big deal because then you can really use that as an antidote. But I am known. I am understood. I am accepted. I am enough. And I'm not gonna, I'm not going to determine who I am by limited perspectives. Now this is not easy. Even if you can stay really clear about that fact in a moment, we are so wired to track what other people think as a kind of biological survival thing that learning to really reduce that voice and hold on to a higher truth is not easy. 
But I do think that people can get better and better at it because what they start to understand is that people who see it differently are living from a more limited view. They're living in a more limited reality. And so I, I don't need to cast pearls to swine. It's not my favorite expression because I'm not implying that people that have a limited understanding are swine, but I don't need to take higher truths and throw them at the feet of, of non-truths. And so being able to hold on to what is true is difficult when you are living in a limited world because it doesn't get validated readily. But that's why I think we value spiritual practices like prayer and meditation and self-reflection because it helps to bring our minds to the higher truths. So, you know, at, when I was in my late adolescence, I was re I really felt insufficient in so many ways. I was like Coke bottle glasses, too much hair that was like four feet off my head because we did perms and Farrah Fawcett then and it was not a good look for me. And my family didn't have much money. And so I just, I just kind of had a lot of social rejection. And so I was though in the face of the invalidation trying to hold on to a sense of my dignity that superseded like how I was seen and treated by others. And so I remember really being in pursuit. I had faith in a God that loved me and knew me. Meaning when I say I had faith in it, I had hope for that. I was, I could feel it as a possibility, but that I couldn't really yet feel in my heart. And so I really went into a kind of, I'm not going to get it from the group. I've got to get it from here and in a God that knows me. And so what I did during that period was really pursue a feeling of connection to divinity, to a bigger view of me than I had. And it was fleeting. I could sometimes get that view. Other times I just couldn't. I just, it wasn't there for me. But what I, I, I stayed in that pursuit and I also, you know, created a, a, an idea of my, for myself of how I really wanted to see myself, right? That I am a worthy human being, that I matter, that I, you know, and, and how I was going to treat myself. And so I drew up a kind of a vision of a picture of the kind of person I wanted to become, the kind of person that I personally would feel good about. And, and I just, I wrote that up and I referenced that every single day, often morning and night, right? Thinking about and reflecting on this kind of higher self, this higher understanding. And it was a really important antidote for me for all the invalidation that I would get. And um, often feeling not understood, not really accepted for the weird kid that I often was actually. And, um, but it did really help to have that sort of check-in and belief in a, in a God that knew and loved me. And so I think we need that. The other thing I would say is looking for people that know you, that see you properly, right? Being in relationship with people who get you and love you because they're reflecting that divine understanding back to you. And it helps tremendously.
you know, with all the misunderstanding that you may get from others, right, they can't change who you are. And to be reminded by the people who know and care for you, the strong ones that are able to see through all the, the crap, be there because then you can feel the truth of who you are in their presence and makes it easier for you to access it. So, yeah. I'm wondering a little bit um, with, so you're talking about this higher connection kind of with God and yourself. How do you maintain relationships where some, you know, I feel like I, I have been on my own journey and gotten in my own place and the God that I believe in feels so different than the God that I felt like I was taught growing up. Yep. So how, when, when you've developed this new place, this new connection with yourself and with God, how do you maintain relationships or, um, even feel safe around people who haven't done that for themselves or a hundred percent just believe in a different type of God than you do, yeah, yeah. you know? So, so first of all, as human beings develop, there's a lot of research on this and theory on this, their view of God changes. So if you're in a kind of very young mind, moral mindset, you have a God that punishes and rewards and like some people and doesn't like other people. And it's just a much more tribal God, right? Then as you grow into a deeper ability for social connection, you know, you believe more in a God that, that values you doing your part and, you know, has commandments and expectations, but is more loving than that, even if still judging. And then as you grow and as you grow into a more, self-authoring position as i'm talking about well the god you seek change it it changes to a different meaning it's more of it it's a it's more um what's the word um it's not quite the right word i don't quite have like the god of the is it's very literal and concrete like sim uh like you know religious symbols are like concretely valuable whereas you grow they become more symbolically valuable so you have more of a notion of the concept of truth and light and living into a higher self and a being that cares about you doing that right perhaps and you don't i don't think everyone has to believe in an actual being to still access that sort of divine truth that truthful way of living so how do you feel so so first of all i'm just normalizing that our view of god develops as we do um how do you feel safe around it i would say the idea of safety isn't really the right idea because what makes us unsafe with people who think differently than us is only if we need them to see us for us to hold on to our sense of our dignity. Does that make sense? So that does make sense. And I, I don't know, it's really good. It's very profound. Keep going. Okay. 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 Good. Right. And so again, it's like, I, 
you know, and I can fall into this for sure. Like I know I'm with people who think I should think a certain thing or whatever. And, you know, you can feel the pull into seeing yourself in the way that they see you rather than holding on to who you are and letting other people be where they are, be who they are, even if, you know, and I often think, you know, that person thinks how I used to think and mm -hmm. I can forgive them for that. And <laughs> yeah, and I can still love them, right? And the more you love people, right, the more you win. And I don't mean it quite like that you win, but mm -hmm. if you're looking to them to love you, you're putting yourself under them as opposed to, can I love this person who, for whatever reason, needs to see the world in black and white ways, needs to be judgmental, to manage something in themselves, doesn't feel good, but can I love them anyway, that that's where they are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's hard. Uh, but you know, I think it is the only way to get past it. Somebody asked what, um, so, and maybe this is in context of family members, maybe not, but if you have a relationship where obviously when you're thinking differently, somebody, their reaction is either fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you, um, are, can you engage with that person or is it like, therapy or no go like how does that work can you uh -huh. okay so so the question is if you, if you have a family member or somebody that matters to you but they will either fight you on you know basically the fact of who you are or your choices or they will pretend it's not happening or you know absent themselves from the conversation well right where we get in trouble is when we're trying to convince somebody that we are the right kind of person. So as soon as we are saying, I need you, listen, I, okay, I, well, I, okay, I'll come back to that. I get why we're doing it, believe me. The people that matter to us, we want their acceptance and there's nothing weird about that. But if we're saying, I've got to get you to accept me, got to get you to understand me, for me to feel okay, then we've placed the locus of control into the hands of somebody who can't handle it, who's not gonna handle it well. And so it's not about getting them to understand. It's about revealing your, how to say it? It's about, a lot of times we, let me say it a little bit differently. I talk to people about the difference between intimacy and control or validation. Intimacy is to reveal ourselves, to be true to ourselves, to show who we are. And intimacy is unilateral. Now, I don't mean if they're flying out the room that they're going to understand your sentence if they're not even there to hear it, but they understand that you're showing who you are. They just don't want to deal with it. So if we are intimate, right, then the locus of control is within us. We are showing who we are. We're letting, we're not apologizing for the truth about ourselves. If we're trying to convince them that we are the right kind of person, right? Right. Then they're going to use that power that we're giving them to either fight us and tell us we're not, or just try to get away from us. But to really operate from a place of intimacy, it requires coming to peace with ourselves. 
So, hey, mom, it is painful for me. It's hard for me that you struggle so much to come to peace with who I am. Okay, that would be an intimate statement. It has been hard for me too. I can understand why perhaps it's hard for you, but it is still painful. So that's not trying to convince mom. That's showing yourself to mom. And it's much more productive, but also it keeps the control where it belongs within you to hold your dignity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And I think it does depend on the person because, yeah, you can keep the control, but if that person. Right. So if that person won't, right, and they're just there to make, you know, to be abusive or, you know, then it, you know, I've worked with clients where it really was the healthiest thing to stop the pursuit, to really be thoughtful about how much engagement or time they spent with that person, right? Because mm -hmm. they have to make a decision, but based on what is true about the other person. It's not healthy for me to keep trying to get this person's acceptance. That's never going to give it. Or I'm not going to spend more t any more time trying to get them to understand me or love me. Uh, and so then still living in the truth. It doesn't mean that you're writing that person off forever because if they were to change or come back differently, then then you could have a different conversation but yeah if 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 someone just refuses to confront themselves in their relationship with you i mean this is why i think love as you know my favorite interpretation of christ's message the, the one that resonates most with me is that love is more important than ideology like that love leads the way because as we come to know real people, real individuals in the body of Christ, it pushes us to grow, right? It's like, you know, who is this other person? It, it challenges my worldview. It challenges what I want. It challenges my sense of who I am as a mother. I'm just like using that as an example, whatever. It, and if I care about this person, then their experience, their story, who they are matters. And it matters for shaping my sense of what is true and right. And so I think Christ was very clear, like love is the highest principle. Love is the measure. And, but love is really hard. And that's why we cling to ideology more than love <laughs> is we love, we love our own ideas and we love our own comfort. Uh, loving other people is really hard and tolerating other people often is very hard. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, we had a question. Um, can you talk about how to make sense of things when what you are choosing isn't producing the results you hoped for? Which I think, I don't know, I've experienced that before where it's like, yeah. okay, I'm choosing this path. It's going to look this way. And yeah. then the results right. are way different than right. what I had planned for. Right. Well, I hard. think that's so much of life. I mean, I, you know, again, I think a lot of times why we're like, oh, I want to know God's plan or I want to, it's because we want to avoid that 
process <laughs> of choosing and then being like, oh crap, this isn't working out or this isn't what I wanted or this isn't yielding the results I was hoping I would get. And, but that is so much of what it is to be an agent in the world is that we're going to go and make the best decision we can with the choices in front of us. And then as we walk down that path, we start to see things differently. We understand ourselves differently. We understand our relationship differently. We, something becomes more evident. You know, I, I think I've worked with people where they chose a heterosexual marriage because they thought this will work. You know, we can do this. Um, this isn't going to matter. Sexuality is not going to matter that much to me. It's going to be fine. And then they take, they start walking down that path and then they start perhaps under, and not for everybody, of course, some people may walk down that path and stay at peace with that. But others may feel like, wait, this isn't yielding what I thought. And here I am now and I have a child and now what do I do? Right. So it's often what, what am I learning from that choice? What is being revealed to me about what is true about who I am? about my circumstances and what is my choice at this point? You know, we love the idea of, oh, I learned that now I wish I can go back and now choose differently. We can't, we never can. We can only go forward, which is a hard thing about life. But given what I'm learning, what do I choose now? <clears throat> can I ask a question? Sure. I'm just thinking about what feels like an impossible choice when you you feel that god has led you to to the the church that a lot of us are in or you know or has led us to stay there we've had spiritual experiences you know all of that but on the other hand the church seems really wrong to us in how they're approaching you know the whole sexually divergent community yeah making making them feel less than um yeah. and and this feels like an impossible choice to go one way or to say well i'm just going to leave the church because of the way they're treating this or handling this and i yeah. feel like i feel like there are a lot of people in that position who are feeling this pain because they feel like they cannot make it's it feels like an impossible yes. choice yeah no i I appreciate what you're saying, right? Because both because of belief and belonging and then, but it's so deeply disappointing me or is so bad for me that, you know, how, how do I find it? And I mean, I'm not here to say, oh, it's so, you know, you just have to do this or you don't. I think it does feel often very impossible because again, we want to belong to our group. And we want to belong to the truth of who we are. And it's true, you know, the, the healthier we become as a society, as a church community, as families get stronger, they get more able to accommodate more diversity. That's really the defining reality of how healthy a system is. But I don't know if I have great choice. So, so one thing I would say about like, what do I do if I've had these spiritual experiences, right? That have led me there. Well, one of the things, so, so this is something someone asked, what do I say to my children? Something that I always said to, we always said to our kids was that, you know, when people say the church is true, what they're saying is this is, 
you know, I feel true things here, that I feel truth in this experience, uh, but that we're only as true as we behave is what I would say to my kids, right? We're only as true as we are walking in divine truth. We can't just sort of get the stamp and say we're done. And so I've said to my kids, you know, we, you will always, whenever you belong to any group, whether it's a church or a marriage or anything, there's, you're, there's always going to be a divergence between what the group wants and thinks and who you are. And to be, and so it means recognizing that there's fundamental flaws as the normative reality. And then who am I going to be in the face of those flaws? So one of the, one of the things you're talking about is, wait a minute, how can it both be true and not true? Like, how, how can I have, I'm not sure if that's quite what you're saying, but I've had these experiences that have led me here. Is that the idea? But then how do I stay? Well, and also just for instance, um, you feel like you, in, if you want to be true to yourself, you can no longer attend the temple, but you feel a deep spiritual longing that that's important also. And that, mm. you know, and that that's where you, what you want to do. I don't know. I just like, mm -hmm. let me just think about that. I think too, I don't know. Cause that's obvious. I've been through the same thing and it's like um, what Jennifer has said is that these are imperfect systems. So what might, yeah. what God might want you to do is go to the temple, but the church doesn't allow it and we can't change, or at least right now, we cannot change what the church allows. Mm -hmm. And what lies then is our decisions in the face of that impossibility of yeah. like it's you you know like okay so what i feel like is god is asking me to do two things that i cannot do which is also something that we believe he asked eve right right she had to choose and that's he right came with losses and it's uh it's impossible it's literally impossible i hate it right it's true. I do think, you know, so much of the, the, the therapy approach that I take is really about dealing with life's impasses. I don't know what the answer is for you. And I certainly think the impossibility reality is just so painful. Like you want two good things and you can't have them both or that the limitations in other people make it impossible. Um, and so... I do think it's, you know, a lot of the work that I do is around helping people kind of confront those pain points and then what am I going to choose and what am I going to grieve? It's really pretty amazing that that's sort of our founding story is a, a fundamental impasse and then the agency to choose was what took someone out of innocence and dependency into capacity as a human being, right? Like, being innocent wasn't enough capacity was it yes that just and blew my mind there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so it's hard you know i i think one of the things we maybe don't talk about enough and i don't mean it in the martyr sense but just how much life asks us to grieve loss it blows my mind sometimes how much 
people have to grieve and lose and tolerate. Um, and, you know, we have a good friend who, whose home was in Kharkiv four days into the um, invasion, her house was bombed out. And, you know, she's like such a good human being and the grief and the loss of her community that even if the war ends, she will never have the good thing in her life, that she'll never have the community. I mean, so there's been such a diaspora that even if she were to rebuild her home, right, it still would not be the same. It would not be the same people. It wouldn't be the same experience. And life just demands it of her for no good reason, <laughs> right? Because of evil, because of limitation. And so how do we find the ability to still, like, she doesn't want the choices she has. None of them are what she wants. What she wants is a perfectly legitimate thing to want. Life doesn't offer it to her. And so what it means to have faith in my view is like, I'm gonna keep setting one step in front of the other despite all the legitimate grief, the legitimate sadness, the legitimate struggle to stay hopeful in the face of so much undeserved adversity. And I think the more that we can, again, it's so easy to talk about it just sitting here, but it's like the more we can kind of tolerate that that is what life does. <laughs> My mom was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and it's just heartbreaking because she's so good and she's given so much in her life. And like just to ha handle that, that's just a loss we're going to have to deal with. And so life is about it. The more we can kind of not go into how, why me, you know, really it's like, why not me? Because humans suffer. And so can we find a way to tolerate that fact and find what is the best path that I can stand behind in the face of loss, grief, um, misfortune, injustice. That's what it is to turn the other cheek. That's what it is to create good in a world that is suffering. Thank you, Jennifer. And I really feel that like when you're kind of in it, in that turmoil, it is, it feels pretty dark and it's yes. sometimes can be pretty depressing. But um, when you get to that place where you are able to make those decisions and weed through some of those things, there's so much hope and there's so yes. much love. And yes. it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the, right, one of the things that, I think it was Carl Jung that said it. I'm sorry, I can't remember which one said it. <laughs> but, you know, that we grow out of our problems. And, I mean, again, that makes it sound like it's just we're just growing out of things. And, you know, you, mm -hmm. but that, that is as you take that step that builds capacity like Eve did, right, you start to be wiser you start to see more how the world really is and you don't get buffeted about so much by lesser ways of thinking and so as you get wiser you start to experience more freedom because you're not dependent in the same way on other people and you can actually care about people and feel connected to the good in the world as the antidote 
to the injustice, to the suffering. It's, it's very conceptual, but you know, it's also very, very true. And so the more that we take deep responsibility for ourselves in the face of unjust realities, in the face of wanting contradictory possibilities, the more we will grow into our strength, the more we'll find it within us rather than looking for it hopelessly outside of us. That's beautiful. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, we've been here for an hour. We won't take up any more of your time. We really appreciate it. I know you probably took time away from your family. So thank you for giving us your goodness, your words. Um, I got a lot from it. I feel very hopeful and excited. Um, hopefully others have as well. Um, thank you all for coming as well. So thank you. Thank Thanks, you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.